Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Welcome to Viral, a podcast series looking at the spread of COVID-19 as it continues to affect Ireland and the international world in a growing capacity. As some countries begin experiencing an equally large second wave of COVID-19, we look at whether Ireland's roadmap to reopening leads us on course for a similar fate. How bad will the second wave be in Iran? Authorities uh, in Tehran lifting the lockdown on religious gatherings in 132 cities, part of a gradual easing of confinement that began on April the 11th. This in a nation hit early and hard by COVID-19. For authorities, it's a case of pick your druthers. Keep the sanctions, squeeze country in lockdown and risk a complete collapse of the economy or open up and hope there won't be a dramatic spike in new coronavirus infections. That was Francois Picard reporting for France 24 at the beginning of May as Iran, one of the world's worst affected COVID-19 regions, began to reduce their own lockdown measures, opening up religious centres and public transport in a move deemed by many as irresponsibly premature. In the four weeks since, Iran has seen a mass resurgence of the virus as positive case results pass its previous worst from mid-April. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Patrick Wintour, diplomatic editor for The Guardian, who was in Tehran as the virus originally took hold of the country and has been covering it for them ever since. We discussed the gravity of a second wave on a country which has already seen mass political turmoil in recent months and how their political alliance with China may have been the catalyst for their initial deadly first wave. Later on then in the podcast, I'm also joined by Professor Jerry Killeen from the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences, UCC. Jerry has been extremely vocal on the probability of a second wave hitting here in Ireland and feels that the current phased roadmap we have in the country is primed to attract this. In my chat with Jerry, we discuss if there's anything that can be done to try and mitigate this factor, and he discusses why COVID-19 as an endemic pathogen will be with us for at least four years. First though, here is my chat with Patrick. Patrick, to start off, could you give me a picture of how badly affected Iran was within the first initial wave during the pandemic? Um, I was actually in Tehran at the time to cover the parliamentary elections. And it was just sort of whilst I was there that you began to see how the country was becoming gripped by this problem. 
and there was a lot of uncertainty about the scale of the disease because it was very new. It's the first time it had happened in the Middle East and I think the death rate was much, much higher than it is now, uh, partly because people didn't um, present themselves to hospitals till very late. Um, and uh, the uh, Iranian health service was just not geared up for this. And you know, in Tehran, where I was, you started to see very quickly the um, kind of the spread of the masks and the gradual disappearance of traffic. Like, Tehran is like one of the most congested traffic zones mm. you could ever get to. And... Um, you could get from one end of town to the, the other within sort of 20 minutes after about uh, three or four days because people tweaked that there was something really serious gripping the country. Do you know exactly why it was so badly affected? Can you speak about what impact maybe its relationship with China might have contributed to this? Sure. Well, Iran is, hasn't got that many allies in the world and one of them is China and the, there had been a lot of planes flying from the Wuhan area into town called Kum, which is south of Tehran, and it seems that the disease broke out there, and certainly the Iranian airlines were slow to sort of clamp down on flights from China. And there's some suspicion, which, you know, it can't be resolved finally because it's such a secretive culture, that the Iranian political class knew that this had broken out, but were reluctant to make it widely known because they wanted as many people as possible to come to vote in the parliamentary elections. They needed a kind of higher turnout to sort of basically shore up their authority. And in fact, they got a very low turnout anyway. Mm. So um, uh, suppressing this news didn't help them, but it may have engendered a worse or more deeply embedded disease. When things began to escalate, then what did an Iranian lockdown actually look like? And was it obvious that when it did begin to reopen, that was a premature decision? Yeah, I mean, what they did was they, you know, they've got a very high class kind of research and epidemiological group. And what they started to do was the kind of classic social distancing. And then after a lot of delay, started to quarantine some of the worst affected cities, which I think is a classic thing where some of it was being driven from below, where, you know, citizens themselves were trying to set up roadblocks to protect, you know, their town or city from people coming in and spreading the disease. And it coincided with the kind of Iranian New Year when there's a lot of traveling and people go on holiday for two weeks. So there couldn't have been worse in that regard. So they ended up closing the schools, closing the universities, trying to implement social distancing on public transport and sending out all the kind of messages you'd see in the West. One of the problems is there's kind of so many different layers of authority in Iran. I won't go into it now, but it it creates a kind of confusion as to who's in charge. And there was a feeling that the health ministry didn't really have enough authority over what was being done. And there was some tussling going on between the army, the IRGC, the parliament, the government, and the health ministry about who was in charge. That doesn't help. And then after that, there was a natural decline in cases, though. Yeah, they got it under control. Within about a month, they got the number of deaths down and they started to relax the controls. And part of the pressure is that because of sanctions and just because of the state of the economy in Iran, there was huge pressure to let people go back to work Mm. because people were effectively destitute and they just don't have the kind of money to run a big social welfare scheme and subsidize everyone's wages. I mean, they did to a degree, but they just don't have the cash to do that at the level you can do in a kind of prosperous Western government. So they probably prematurely lifted some of those restrictions, particularly on travel. 
And now what seems to be happening, and I think they've been slow to acknowledge this, is that the number of cases has really spiralled. They have a figure for the number of new infections for the previous 24 hours. And the number that's come out today is um, 3,574 new infections, which by my reckoning is a record for the whole period that they've had the disease. So they've now not only got a second wave, but the second wave is higher than the first wave. That's not yet being reflected in deaths because they're arguing that it's a less virulent form of disease and it's a function of the fact that they've got more testing going on, they're measuring it more effectively and therefore the numbers are higher. But we'll see because obviously deaths is a sort of lagging indicator and if the deaths number goes up over the next week to fortnight, then not only is it a second wave, it's as deadly a second wave. The jury's out on that at the moment. Has there been much political damage control made in the meantime as to why this was allowed to happen? There's a sort of classic argument going where the authorities, the health ministry, is blaming the populace for not following the social distancing guidelines that they said were still in force. And there's an argument about whether the social distancing rules were lifted prematurely, like all the mosques were opened Mm. uh, last week. And they did that, even though it was clear that there was a second wave underway. And you would have thought they would put the brakes on. But it seemed like the kind of machine was rolling towards relaxation of everything and just didn't want to acknowledge the problem had returned with such a vengeance. Is there any indication that a reinforcement of lockdown measures might happen in the short term then? Yeah, I mean, today and over the last 24 hours, 48 hours, the health ministry has been saying, you know, we will have to reimpose restrictions if this doesn't come under control. And just looking at the figures this morning, I would have thought they're going to have to reimpose restrictions. But it's a very difficult thing to do. You know, once you've imposed them once and then you've lifted them. I mean, we've seen in particular areas, you know, China has done it, but it'd be a pretty tough thing to do. And the whole time, you know, you're, you're testing the kind of popularity and trust there is in the regime. And you know, as we know, the, the kind of trust in the regime or respect for it is kind of pretty limited. And there is this economic pressure to work. So the government in a bind, uh, you know, they will be reluctant to reimpose all the controls that they uh, have lifted. What do you feel that the sudden resurgence then teaches us in the West about how we might approach the reopening phases of our lockdown? Well, inevitably, you know, it's a kind of warning in lights about premature lifting of restrictions and complacency and the need to keep the messages very clear. And I think, you know, one of the ironies is we in the West see Iran's incredibly authoritarian government and that they have a rod of iron and that certainly, you know, they repress political freedoms pretty effectively, but they they haven't been able despite this reputation, to really impose their will on how ordinary Iranian people have behaved in their daily lives. And in a way, it's what you do in your daily life that affects what happens. It's just going to be so hard for the regime to acknowledge that this has gone wrong. Professor Jerry Clean has worked in Africa for over 18 years, focusing on transmission dynamics and control strategies for malaria and Zika. I began our conversation by asking him whether the probability of a second wave of COVID-19 in Ireland is a matter of when and not if. Well, based on the way we're going, it would be when, but the question is how big. And can you speak to me a little bit about that? What are your predictions, I suppose, with the indications you've received so far? If we proceed on the path that we're going on, right? So let's say we were to just follow the five-phase plan. You know, I taught my my 12-year-old son threw the maths last night. He made the calculations himself. So we would come out of the 12-phase 
plan at best with about five confirmed cases per day, which would be in reality 20 cases in total because we only pick up about a quarter of all cases that occur. Mm. Um, and then that's a long way short of zero. You know, so that's 20 per day. That's uh, 140 a week. It's over 500 per month. And, you know, with all restrictions lifted, that approximately doubles every week. So, so very quickly, it spirals out of control. And if it was allowed to continue doing so, you know, you would be looking at, you know, 40,000 deaths in the Republic of Ireland within the year, peaking perhaps at 1,000 deaths a day in and around Christmas or New Year. The current plan just doesn't add up. And, you know, those calculations are made based on quite optimistic assumptions. Like that assumes that you go through all five phases and relaxing the restrictions along the way doesn't result in any increased growth of the virus population, which is unrealistic. And assuming that that phased reopening isn't going to change, what can be done to mitigate then how hard a second wave might actually hit? What can we do ourselves to try and prepare for it or to try and make sure that it isn't as far reaching as maybe the worst predictions might be? Well, the short answer is you can't. Okay, so if you let the pandemic, the epidemic really go, then it's so big that it's not possible to mitigate. And you know, these decisions have been clearer for low-income countries because they, they can't even imagine being able to mitigate it. You know, whereas a lot of the, the higher-income countries like Ireland, what we haven't grasped is that we're actually less than 10% of the way through this. If we go through the remaining 90% plus, you know, over the course of the next year, it would overwhelm health facilities dozens of times over. Yeah, and these aren't just my numbers. You can go back to Neil Ferguson in mid-March, you can go to the projections that was produced by Chowdhury and his colleagues in the European Journal of Epidemiology. You know, all the graphs, they all look the same. So you just can't mitigate that. If you were to reimpose restrictions and then get into a kind of a, a roller coaster cycle of epidemic surges and reintroduced restrictions, you know, that would probably take about 10 cycles and four years to get through if you don't want to overwhelm your ICU capacity. So the problem there is you've still got the same number of people who get sick. They all have to go to ICU. They do get care. We don't end up with people piled up on the streets, as has happened in, in many countries at this stage. But still, everybody has, does have to go through the ICU. It's not a place you want to be, and you're still you know, looking at similar number of deaths, but stretched out over four years. And then the restrictions we're under would have to be, most of those would have to be stretched out of four years, over four years to stop the epidemic getting, you know, going beyond levels for ICUs could cope with. So if you mitigate, you know, if you mitigate, then you really have to keep a pretty tight lid on the epidemic for about four years. Otherwise, it goes beyond what you can mitigate. Do you believe it's possible for society to adapt in that sort of fashion where, you know, we might just be exiting and entering lockdown-style phases continuously or what, what would happen, I suppose, in the community in the meantime? Well, I can't speak for everybody else, but that's not a plan I want to have to live through. It's not a plan that I could, you know, I could look any of our cocooners in the eye about and, and recommend to them. I think it's a totally unreasonable thing for us to ask of our 
healthcare workers. I saw a tweet out today by uh, somebody who's working in an ICU and she just saw people out socializing in public spaces and brewing up the second wave that she's going to have to deal with. And and she just said it's so disheartening and so unfair. And she's correct. She's absolutely correct. Uh, so I, I, I think it's actually the worst of the three scenarios. I used to think it was the sort of um, immediate biblical plague. But, you know, actually, some countries have chosen that route on the basis that you know, at least they get through it and they do put their economy first and they do accept the horrors that will come over the next year, but they'll come out of it in a year. You know, that's also a dreadful scenario. Um, but you know, some countries have chosen that. So neither of those scenarios are situations any of us really want to find ourselves in. But it's important that we speak openly about that these will be the consequences of our choices or worse, our indecision. You know, for many people, I think um, the consequences of choosing to flatten the curve and live with, um, you know, a long drawn out epidemic they haven't been spelled out clearly and so it's not really a decision that we've all signed up to based on informed consent it's not a set of promises that stands up in reality that was episode 30 of viral covid19 i'd like to thank both jerry clean and patrick wintour for joining me on today's podcast i will be back next week with more information and news surrounding ireland's fight against covid19 i mean doyle i'll speak to you then When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.